Good morning and welcome back to yet another jam-packed episode of Appleosophy Weekly. We're back at it again and ready to unwrap the tech of today. I am once again joined by my wonderful co-host, Will Sigmund, Willie Sigs, we call him Wigs, right, Will? And the wildly talented Chris Grant Jr., host of the Grant and Geek Show on YouTube. We are unwrapping all the details behind the latest performance benchmarks for the new iPad Pro and the 24-inch iMac family, AirTag hacks, and more. I'm your host, Brom Shank. Thank you very much for joining us, and let's get ready to dive right in. Starting with Chris. Chris, tell us a little bit about your channel, what you do, what's your philosophy? Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. I checked out Appleosophy. It's a great channel. I've seen you guys on YouTube and on Twitter. You guys are doing really good stuff. So the Granite Geek Show has been around since about September. I started a YouTube channel with my best friend, Jay Laracuente, and we decided to make something, pioneer a new type of YouTube channel. It's basically like a TV network on YouTube. So multiple different creators, multiple different shows, having different seasons and stuff like that. And after I had done the uh, Sea of Music, which was my music related show, I came on with the Granite Geek Show. The tech has always been close to my heart. I grew up creating computers from hand-me-down scrap parts and stuff. So I learned my ABCs really quick when it comes to computers. And I just thought it was about time. So that's kind of how the Granite Geek Show came about. And the name, because we were talking about it a little bit earlier, the name Granite Geek, it's just mixed with my name, Grant, as Chris Grant Jr. And then I needed something a little catchy. And so geek, I was like, nerd, geek. And I was like, Granite Geek sounds. So that's kind of how it all came together. That's really cool. And let's move on forward to Will. How are you doing today? I'm feeling great, and I'm excited to to get Chris's take on some of the stories that we have. And part of the reason that we wanted you to come on the show is you have some good opinionated videos here. And so I think Brom found you. He sent me one of your videos, and he's like, we got to get this guy on the show. And then you uploaded another one, and I was like, okay, definitely. As well. I think we had already asked you at that point, but let me just say, when it comes to Chris, one of the things that stood out to me about Chris is is he's really all about the iPad centric lifestyle. He started is again this little microcosm on YouTube of all these creators aggregating all these creators and producing this content. He does this all with an iPad, which I find phenomenal. I've always. Uh, uh, been a huge uh, fan of the iPad. I I, ch I would choose it over my Mac 300 times over. So it's really cool to see what people are doing with the iPad. And the fact that it's Chris's device of choice to do all this, I think is just phenomenal. We're, we're going to talk about that. But Chris, I love that you're upfront and open about that because there's a lot of times there's a stigma associated with that. And Absolutely. I've seen people roll their eyes at me when I tell them I started my business with an iPad. Yeah. And it's because they don't understand the full picture of, of what's actually possible, not because they don't understand, but maybe they've never tried it. Maybe yeah. they've never seen what it can do or what the performance really is like. Yeah, Bram, there's definitely a lot of reluctance to uh, get on the iPad bandwagon, so to speak. I, I, like I had said in some other videos, I started out using the iPad in college and I was a musician starting a YouTube channel and doing typical schoolwork. And so I really found the iPad to be the best of all three worlds where it could be a desktop, a laptop or a tablet. It's great for creation and consuming content. And so I decided to go all in. I bought my first iPad. It was the 12.9 inch first generation generation iPad Pro and the thing just flew and I was so impressed by its its performance and the way that iOS had been so streamlined to be so efficient with this hardware and so I was really sold since then and I had used the MacBook Pros and even the Mac Mini when it the M1 when it had come out since then but I'd always wanted to be getting back to an all iPad workflow. And so with the release of the M1, I don't know at what point we're going to dig into that. But with the release of that, I was like, this is finally my chance to combine the power of the M1 with the portability of the iPad. We're really seeing a, a tablet revolution, so much so that Jaws, Greg Joswiak of Apple, he, he says, we don't even have the right to call these things tablets anymore. You really go back to what is a computer? This yep. thing's faster than 98% of portables that we see out there. M1 is just phenomenal. It's amazing to see in the iPad. You make a great point too there because when even when the iPhone came out, can we really even call the iPhone a phone anymore? So I think the same kind of thing is happening with iPad. Definitely. What are your thoughts? As far as the iPad lifestyle or the M1 iPad? 
What is your, what is your relationship like with an iPad? It's, it's an on again, off again. We're in an open relationship. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I will say it, it, it comes in kind of seasons. So for me, I'm a jack of all trades, but a master of none when it comes to creating stuff. I would definitely consider myself a prosumer. And so there are things that like uh, editing photos that I really enjoy doing and I actually find it quite cathartic that I do on the iPad and for the most part as long as I'm using a program that has the same features or is the same program or a program specifically made for the iPad Mm -hmm. then things like that I don't think twice about don't mind when I'm traveling iPad is the only thing that goes with me when I'm on a normal day though I'll typically log off my main computer here unless I'm doing something rigorous and I'll go into the living room and usually my iPad's either over there or in the bedroom and I'll snag it and have it out and use it more casually as we're watching TV or something like that and as but when you say casually will it's i've noticed a contrast Uh, i i pick up my ipad when i'm feeling creative when i want to hit that apple pencil up against the screen and really get to work and i think chris you share that that same distinction there well whereas will was telling me a a couple weeks ago he said i find myself using my ipad less because i consume a lot of media on it and i'm consuming most of my media on the oculus now so it struck me there that iPad is more of a media consumption device for you than anything else. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And that can be anything from video. And I was specifically talking about video when I said that. But a lot of news of the day, different RSS apps, Twitter, checking up on Slack, chatting but with people. But that's the important takeaway is I think a lot of people dismiss the iPad because they think it's yeah. just for content consumption. And we have people who for over a decade now are doing real work on this, that are starting their businesses, they're making music. So it's important to to educate people, especially when, you know, you have an iPad now that has the same chip as the entry-level MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air. You're not really giving anything up in terms of performance. And if an iPad fits into your workflow, if it has its niche in your life, you could be paying $200 less in a MacBook Air to just hop right. on an iPad and get work. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Yeah, Bram, you make a great point. And I think it's, it is it is software. At this point, it is about software. Really, for the last two iterations of the iPad, it has been about software since the third generation. And I even did a video kind of maxing out the horsepower on the second gen iPad. And it was still able to do 4K video editing while doing thumbnails, while doing other things. But when you look at the last to the third and fourth generation in particular, they've had the power of i5, i7 processors. So when it comes to horsepower, you're getting, and iOS is supported peripherals like a mouse and keyboard. So when you need them, they're there, but when you don't, you can do anything that you want. And I think it we'll see this in WWDC 2021, what is Apple going to do with the software? I did a video looking at the M1 performance. This thing beats the 16-inch i9 MacBook Pro. It, it's, it's absurd. Bonkers. It's ridiculous. So now it'll be, okay, what will Blackmagic Design and Adobe and Apple do with this power? And I love that you bring up uh, Blackmagic as far as things like eGPUs and things like that. Uh, the the iPad has Thunderbolt with those bitrate and transfer speeds of our laptops now, which is phenomenal. So I can imagine Photoshop on the iPad, for example, editing off an external drive. There's really some amazing opportunities here as far as IO goes with port, which I think is so cool. Yeah. And as you mentioned with photo editing, I've used, you name it, I've used it for photo editing, particularly on YouTube with thumbnails. And I have never found a more intuitive and speed, speedy, efficient way to make thumbnails than with the iPad. You think about the basic process of, say, moving a bit of text. In order to do that, you have to move your mouse to where the text is. Mm-hmm. You have to click it, and you have to drag it where you want. With the iPad, you see, you touch, you move. It's so much quicker, and I would imagine, and I talked about this in a video, once these processors become as quick as we can think, like they can process and bring things up on the page mm-hmm. just in milliseconds, it will only be, okay, how fast is your input method? Are you using touch or are you using keyboard and mouse? It's really a, a distillation 
of Apple's vision that I think began with the the first Macintosh. When you think about, uh, Steve said he wanted it to be a bicycle for the mind, and that was using a keyboard and a mouse to interact with an online, one of the first graphical user interfaces on a screen. And I, I tell you, when I move, I have to tell you, when I move from a, an iPad over to a Mac, I feel like the experience is trapped inside a screen and I'm using all these weird tools to try to access something that's I love trapped that inside. Terminology. Yeah. And and it there's a Mac has its place in my workflow for certain things. Don't get me wrong, but as like you said, for graphics and creativity, it feels so natural because it works at the speed of your mind because you're doing it with your fingers. Yep. You're doing it yep. with an, an Apple Pencil, in that case, something that feels like a true writing instrument because that latency is so fast that you don't even notice it. Yeah. So it's really important. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get me wrong. While I do use the iPad for media consumption stuff, I'm totally gung ho and on board, would never scoff. In fact, I'm impressed at people that use it 24 7 for their entire workflow. And there are things that, that I think I could almost do to do that, but I would possibly choose not to because So to talk me, to me about that. What kind of, what's your process that you, yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a specific one for work. I use Salesforce. The Salesforce app for iPad is doo-doo. It might work well for iPhone, but... The things that I do and that I can see on the app aren't the same things I can do and see on the uh, website. And I do, there are some things, and sometimes I will start my day on the iPad and it'll be fine. But then it comes to, I think it sometimes it comes down to me, and I know this. It's not necessarily that it can't be done, but it's that it's easier for me, in my opinion, to do it on Mac OS. So if I wanted to drag an Excel file into a case, I have to open the Files app. Or even this, when I try to download an Excel file, even on the website, mm -hmm. it uses JavaScript and the iPad doesn't actually know what to do with it. Great point. And so... Things like that are frustrating. Now, if I had it my way and I could control all the tools that I used, then I think that it would be a lot simpler and easier. Another thing, too, is green real estate. Now, I understand that is going to be a thing of the past now with this new M1 iPad. By the way, Brahm and I are both getting the M1 iPad as well. So Excellent. Wow, I'd love to hear note. your thoughts. We got to do this again sometime. Yeah, yes, yeah, definitely. Sure. If you want again to discuss our experience with that. I'm sure. very curious to see how an iPad experience will be with different I.O. and a screen. It's, yeah. it's bizarre. Now, I want to have you talk a little bit more about the video you mentioned because you made some really great points and I know we're eventually going to get into the news of the week here, but I to give the audience uh, to show them why we wanted you to come on the show. You made some really bold, splashy claims in a good way about WD WWDC this year and where you see iPad OS going. Can you dive in a little bit more and explain what you're yeah. talking about with that? Yeah, absolutely. And you make a great point, Will. All the points you made actually were fantastic in regards to what the iPad is now and what it can do now. You're 100% on point. There are a lot of workflows that simply do not work on the iPad Pro and I would never tell someone who, you know, is in accounting or I get comments all the time or using heavy Excel and these things. The world was not made for iPad as it is now. But that is the amazing thing about what I think is coming in WWDC 2021. And with iOS 15 or iPad OS 15, I think the writing is on the wall. You see the prediction there with the addition of three crucial things, hardware things. And I think what Josniak had talked about the the software cannot come before the hardware. And I had made a reference saying you can't use Adobe Premiere on a Razer flip phone because the mm -hmm. hardware is just not ready. So what did they do with the new iPad? They added 
ridiculously bonkers fast transfer speeds with Thunderbolt XDR, which was just overkill. In my opinion, you could do great editing on the P3 display that they have, but if you shoot in HDR, it's wonderful. Well, and it's and like then, a reference monitor on site. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Awesome. And it, it's got technologies that we've never even seen. Some would argue it's even better than the five or $6,000 XDR display Apple sells. So when you think about what could potentially be coming with iPad OS 15, I'm thinking desktop applications. Apple is tempting every company in the world right now. Look what we've got. Look at all this power. <laughs> you can't say you don't want to design for this. And they absolutely will. You're not just going to let an Apple product sit around and Adobe's not going to go after it. They've already shown they wanted to do that with uh, announcing full-fledged Photoshop on the iPad. So that's really um, why I, I'm so bold with those claims is because I know that these companies will not be able to resist the temptation. And we've seen that as I love the way you illustrate these points, because we've seen Apple have this habit, this pattern of putting this robust technology in place and then adding to it with software. Yeah. And clearly with iPad, we've seen things when the first iPad came out, the most amazing thing that you could do with it is really zip through your email at a speed that you couldn't do on a Mac or a PC for that matter. And, and now it's evolved in this, uh, for, for many people, an indispensable tool in their workflow. You, you referenced the Pro Display XDR and how it compares to the iPad. iPad actually has even more dimming zones than a Pro exactly. Display XDR. And it's in a yep. design that's just a little over five millimeters thin. That, and, or, sorry, six millimeters thin. That's bonkers. That's crazy. You have people that, Hollywood directors that can use this as a reference monitor on site. Absolutely. And for just that monitor, take a look at this five to eight thousand dollars for a Sony reference monitor. Easy. And now they can buy a nine hundred ninety nine dollar tablet and reference their footage in full HDR. This, this isn't just the best tablet display you've ever seen. It's probably the, the best display you've seen, period, as far as you could argue, for the majority yeah. of people out there. Yep. Uh, whether you're a professional, a prosumer or just a regular average consumer wanting the best experience you can get. I want to pivot a little bit to the news for this week. Prosser gave us, John Prosser gave us a little bit of a look at what we can expect for the new MacBook Air. He drew up some renders based on what he's seen. He said he spoke to someone internally at Apple as far as what we can expect. And it looks like Apple's going with this modern nostalgia design language. Prosser is citing that he expects uh, an M2 chip revised Apple Silicon to make its way into this model. The colors will be the more subdued, lighter, airier sky blues that we see on the base of the iMac, not the deep, dark accented back. He's also predicting a revised MagSafe and only two USB-C Thunderbolt ports here. So Apple's feeling very courageous with this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, Um, I love that word. Yes, so Uh, this is interesting because it's the fact that we were expecting a MacBook Air that emulates the design of the iPad or the iMac, sorry. The iMac was really uh, a combination of this industrial design that Apple pioneered with the iPad, the flat edges, the smooth curves, no but industrial pro professional design. It's really the combination of that and hearkening back to the whimsicality of the first iMac and, and how For nostalgic sure. that can be with the, with its colors and things like that. So this is in many ways, this in many ways harkens back to the G3 era, the iBook G3, mm-hmm. in the way that it mimics the color design of the iMac. Now, immediately when I saw these leaks, the thing that came to mind was how Steve Jobs changed the company when he returned back with the iMac, with the release of the iMac back in the early 2000s. And he talked about how we really have to look at how diverse our product line is. And there needs to be a distillation as far as what consumer needs what and the value proposition that we're going to that, that deliver. Very true. And he talked about there needs to be a desktop with a consumer version and a pro version, a laptop with a consumer version and a pro pro version. And it seems like Apple's trying to reapply this philosophy 
because their product lines have really become diverse. You do see things where they're upgrading two or three things every couple of years, revising the keyboard or the screen just a tad, making it a little brighter. And that's very similar to early 2000s Apple. And prior to that, where they were just, they weren't building around ideas. They were building around technology. Yeah. And if anyone who studied Steve Jobs completely disagreed with this, you want to start with the experience you want to deliver and then figure out how the technologies you have are going to integrate. Right. And I feel like Apple's trying to return to this brand strategy of consumer versus pro when we're in an era where Apple has pioneered uh, largely the prosumer. So it becomes the lines are very blurred there as far as what do you go with? Yeah. When you have an iPad, a MacBook Air, and an iMac that all share the same chip and all the Geekbench scores are in within the margin of error, it becomes really difficult to make that decision. So do you think this recipe works with as, with modern Apple, where Apple's at today? You know, I really, I think it does work. And here's why. They made this very clear with the colors. And people talk white bezels and they talk the colors and stuff. I was in an Apple store talking to some folks and I was mentioning how Apple is going to make it so easy to distinguish between pro and consumer level computers that all you'll need to do is look at the Mac and you can know what it's for. When you see the M1 processor in like this colorful iMac, and even they really started this with the iPad Air 4 with this color palette in particular, very similar colors. I I think they want people to be able to walk into an Apple store no, okay, I go to the color section because I'm a consumer. And then the pros typically don't care. So you're going to get your space gray, you're going to get your black, and you're going to get your white. But I think that what is, what's really interesting here is the M1 chip, right? So it's in all these, some prosumers, consumer devices, like the iMac is made for consumers. And you can tell by its Mm -hmm. design language. But the MacBook Pro 13-inch is made for the prosumer. It's in between. It's not really Mm -hmm. a consumer device, but it's not. it doesn't have the power of a pro device. So this is why I think that the M1X or the M2 chip, whatever comes first, this is going to be like, we think we're impressed with the M1. This -hmm. is going to blow everything out of the water. I think it would need to be 50% to 100% faster than what we're seeing with these consumer levels. And people will be looking at their M1s like, this is garbage. (laughs) Apple does have a habit of killing off its own products. Cannibalize your products or someone else will. What are your thoughts on this? Are you waiting for a specific version of Apple Silicon or are you buying into the ecosystem now? No, if you wait, you're always gonna be waiting, in my opinion. What I was gonna ask you guys, there seems to be and, and I'm included in this, somewhat of a anxiety that Apple is going to pull this trigger in the middle of this year, not even a year after the first M1 Max hit the streets. Do you see that happening this year, that, that new chip? And if you do see it, do you only see it in those Pro models and not going back and basically saying, oh, we're putting this in the the MacBook Pro 13. We're yeah. only putting this in the 16 or whatever. I, I um, think, yeah, I think, well, I think you make an excellent point there because in funny, Rene Ritchie, he's, he's a, a tech giant on YouTube and, and on Twitter. He has a, a quote related to this. And he says, if you're thinking about waiting, evaluate what your needs are, technologically speaking, and buy related to your needs. So if you need yeah. something now, buy it now, and then think about upgrading later. If you're always, if you're planning on waiting, you're always going to be waiting. Just Will said, this is buy for your needs now, maybe. And what's cool with Apple too, is you can trade in over time. So if I have an iPad and my needs evolve that I, somewhere down the line, I need a MacBook. I now have $800 towards a new MacBook, which is significant for Apple Silicon MacBooks that start at $899. So you can see how it's any investment uh, as far as Apple hardware goes, is a sound investment as long as it can support uh, your need. <laughs> just quick to, 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 yeah. to what I think is going to happen with these chips, just like they're simplifying with the aesthetic physically, they're also going to simplify with the chips. So there's a reason why we saw M2 
being leaked on the MacBook Air, or at least its equivalent. Mm-hmm. It's because the M series is going to be on their prosumer or their consumer devices. The MX series are going to be what's reserved for the Pro. So the M1X will be used in everything from the Mac Pro to the iMac Pro and those things. Then M2 comes out next year or very late this year, and that will be with the uh, new series of MacBook Airs and MacBook Pros. And then the M2X will be so very simple, very easy to understand. If there's an X, it's for pros. If it's just an M series, it's for consumers. It's I, I hope Apple goes with that scheme because it's easier for the average consumer to discern this is, okay, the same architecture, but maybe this one is graphics boosted or whatever it may be as far as chips go. I have a lot of people coming to me asking, Brom, should I wait? Should I not invest in Apple Silicon right now? Because this is the first version. I don't want to be. And what I tell them is, is look how long the iPad 1 lasted. <laughs> it's really held its own. And that gives you an idea of how Apple Silicon holds up over a decade, so to speak. But what's really interesting is, at least in my opinion, I think investing in Apple Silicon, whether it be a MacBook or an iMac, is a sound decision as far as the Mac goes because it it this these things are future proof just based on architecture. If you're buying an Intel Mac right now, I question it. Yeah. But you're really Apple's focus right now is making the transition to their own silicon, their own architecture. So you're not going to see these products be irrelevant three to five years from now. They're still going to be cooking at the same speed they are now. Yeah. And that's why iPads are like that. They still cook at the same speed you, yep. you've had them on day one because the software is optimized so perfectly. Steve Jobs had this whole quote about, in order for Apple to be the best that we can be, we need to control the process from the top down. We need yep. to control the whole widget, he used to say. And so when you're building the silicon that powers the computers and then the software that people use to access the computers, you're really controlling the whole widget. You have control. You can optimize power more efficiently. That's why we get great battery life, things like that. So I think Apple Silicon in general, if you're making that investment, even if they release something toward the end of this year, M1X, whatever it may be, I think it's a sound investment because Apple is in this for the long haul as far as supporting this architecture, their own architecture. Yeah, and the whole industry is moving toward ARM. You can Mm -hmm. see it from NVIDIA to really the only one getting left in the dust is Intel right now. They have Mm -hmm. yet to move on from their x86 or I think it's x86 architecture or whatever they're using. Mm -hmm. They just refuse and they say they're going to move on. And you could see it was beginning to pull Apple back. And that's why they said, you know what, we're going to go ahead to ARM and the whole industry tends to follow when Apple makes a move. I I would say that it's... the writing's on the wall. If you have the ability to get M1, it's not like anything's going to change. They're not, Apple's yeah. not going to say, oh, sorry, we're going back to Intel and then let's go ahead and get it. And the thing is, like you said, but with Apple products' ability to retain a lot of their value, you take it back in 30 days, it's pretty much worth the same amount. You take it back in maybe three, four months, it's still, you've maybe lost 50 bucks off it or a hundred bucks mm-hmm. off it, uh, which is not a lot when you're talking about a big purchase. We have on the other end of the spectrum, you have PCs or Android devices that... Quite frankly, they're like cars. You drive them off the lot and they lose half their value. Yep, absolutely. So it's interesting contrast that, that not many consumers consider that, that an Apple product is really an investment. And that's not to mention all the benefits that come with it. You think about, we take for granted today at Apple, things like that, that's free support, free yep. learning, free education that comes with your device, I think is just so wildly overlooked. Yeah, it's the whole wildly overlooked. This episode of Apple Aussie Weekly is brought to you by Paperlike, the original matte screen protector for real creators and doers like myself. Paperlike has transformed the way I design content using Apple Pencil and iPad Pro. Its precision textured finish gives me more nuanced control over Apple Pencil, and it enables me to work whenever and wherever I want with minimal distraction. Paperlike's unique texture allows me to work in near-direct sunlight with minimal glare, while also serving to reduce the appearance of fingerprints on my screen. This product has made me fall in love with iPad all over again, all while breathing new life in my creative projects. I know you guys are going to love Paperlike, and that's why we have a special link for you down in the show notes. That's http colon forward slash paper dot me forward slash appleosophy. Go ahead and grab that link down in the show notes below. Get Paperlike for yourself. I know you guys are going to love Paperlike. I'm absolutely thrilled with mine. 
And I'm so excited that I get to promote it here on the show. I have two questions for you guys. The first question is, this is prefaced this with embargoes are being lifted on May 18th. So five days from when we record this. And, and I think we'll have an answer to this question, maybe, if the amount of time passes. I guess they probably have the devices now. So anyway, first question is, how long do you think the battery life will be in the 12.9 in real world usage? I mean, because if, we're, let you add to that one if we're impressed now and you marry that with the M1, mm-hmm. it's like you're doubling down on crazy battery. Yeah. I think we can definitely expect to see improvements in battery life. Apple's not being too generous with how much battery life they're, they're promising. They've stuck to that, that 10 hour figure for ever since the beginning, ever since the first iPad. So I don't think Apple in its testing has noticed anything significant. But they do have a habit, and this goes down to how their loading bars work. They do have a habit of under-promising and over-delivering. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be one of those cases where you could see 11 to 12 hours of battery life. Look at the improvements that we've seen with M1 on computers. That's what I'm on saying. On the Macs. Transitioning to this 5 nanometer architecture is a huge deal for power efficiency. And they talk extensively about performance per watt and things like that. But baseline... One of, the, one of the things that people notice, the first thing that average consumers are going to notice when they get an M1 Mac is how great the battery life is on portables. So yeah. what, what are your thoughts, Chris? I think just to your point about battery, especially with the air, they blew it out the water with 20, 20 hours of battery life. Like, what are, are they playing games here? But no, in terms of what I think is going to happen with the iPad Pro and its battery life right now on their site, and that's what I was doing. I was looking it up just to make sure I have my numbers. They're promising the same 10 hours, up to 10 hours of battery life on all the models. That's with the XCR display. And like you said, Brom, Apple tends to under-promise and over-deliver. So I would expect, even with the XDR display, and remember, XDR is a new technology, but it actually is better for battery life because mm-hmm. you're able to reduce power consumption on certain zones. So I actually think we're going to get the same, if not better, battery life. And then the efficiencies built in with the M1, because Apple's been playing with it for a while now. They know what to tweak and stuff. They've probably been working on, they've actually been working on Apple Silicon on Mac OS since the first developer kit, Mac Mini, came out with the A12Z chip. I think it was the A12Z that was mm-hmm. in there. So they know how to make it efficient, even with heavy workloads. Um, now, of course, with the Mac Mini, they didn't have to worry about power because it's plugged into the wall. But I have no worries about uh, power consumption with the iPad. Yeah, I'm thinking that th- we could see some people getting 24 hours. That would be phenomenal. Wow. I, I'm, I'm more I'm gonna, conservative with my predictions. I'm, I'm going we'll to throw that out there. I love it. Hey, you heard it here first. Will, man. 20, <laughs> um, up to 24 hours. That's insane. Yeah, I'm thinking if you're doing like, quote, normal stuff, if you're not trying to like stress test it or you're not sitting there editing video for that whole time, I, I right. think we could see more toward the 24 than the 10. But to be determined, second question for you guys, do you think the... And maybe this question might end up sounding dumb if if you guys are like, oh, it, it's definitely not because of X. I don't think there's any reason why. This is a off-the-cuff no. But iPhone 13, M1 chip? iPhone 13, M1 chip? I made a video on this, actually. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the answer is yes. We are going to see a chip as powerful as the M1 on the iPhone. We're probably going to see that in the next three to four years, if I'm being honest. And it won't be called the M1. So what they're trying to do is differentiate those chips. But yes, they're all essentially the same chips. Apple's got a nice little conveyor line, and they will be moving the iPhone up as the desktops and laptops get more and more powerful. So the quick answer is actually, yes, we will see a chip that powerful that can have eight cores and eight gigs of RAM and all those things, depending on because also software tends to drive this conversation as well. If there's powerful software that's lagging on the iPhone, people are going to want more power. So as far as that goes, yeah, we'll see it, but it won't be called the M1. It'll be called, I don't know, it'll probably be called the A15, A16 at that point. But yeah, it'll be there, but not with the iPhone 13. Okay. Let me follow up with another question. You seem extremely confident in that answer which is great. So what makes you feel so sure that they want to continue to differentiate the A-line chips versus the M-line chips? 
Yeah. So with that, it's if you don't cannibalize your product, somebody else will. And I think that I think Steve Jobs said that the truth is they have to keep pushing the boundaries. They have to keep pushing the what's possible. So Apple really doesn't have a choice and <laughs> they have to make their because Samsung will try to be right behind them. And Apple's miles ahead of most of the competition, especially in the phone department. But it's not like these Samsung phones are at a standstill. They are moving. And I think in order for Apple to stay competitive, yeah, they're going to try and put the power that's in the iMac today. They're going to try to put that, squeeze that into an iPhone in four years. You know what I'm saying? And this is what's going to, and the more they chase after that ultimate efficiency and ultimate power in their chips, it's going to make their desktops better and their laptops and the whole process will be made better. So that's why I have that confidence is because Apple doesn't have a choice. They've got competition. Sure. sure. But what? why do you feel like they would differentiate their chips though like on an iphone versus all the other pr products it's interesting will i think one of the reasons why chris is so adamant about this and i agree with him is because take a look at apple's lineup right now take a look at where this is apple realized in the very early days of the iphone how scalable the ARM-based chips are, the reduced instruction set architecture, how scalable that can be. You have things like the Apple Watch and its S-series chip is built on the architecture of the A13 chip that you'd find in an iPhone 11 Pro. And, and so when you think about things like that, all of Apple, Apple's entire silicon line is really a distillation of what do we add and what do we take out? and how much power is it going to use? Yeah. But at the baseline, it's the same baseline architecture. The What are we on? The S6 chip in the Apple Watch Series 6 is very similar to the A13, given that it's the same architecture. And Apple likes to differentiate because they want consumers to know what they can expect. Take a look at HomePod Mini, which has an Apple Watch chip in it. Why are people so in love with HomePod Mini? Obviously, it's that great price, but compared to the first generation HomePod, what does it have in it? It has an Apple Watch chip. What is Apple Watch Silicon great at doing? Bluetooth. That's why this thing kills it with AirPlay, because this thing is great at Bluetooth protocols. It never loses the connection. We know that because we've been doing it for six years with Apple Watch. Right. And so Apple really is great about figuring out what silicon, what chip goes where, and what what instruction sets are most important. Yeah, for sure. And I think as far as the naming, I think it's just for its marketing. You take the A off of it, you take the M off, it's the same chip. M just stands for Mac, A stands for Apple. They could call it the I1 or the I6 chip for iPhone or whatever. But yeah, I think as far as the naming, it's just, it's a marketing thing. But at the base level, they're they're going to be the same chips. Well, and take a look, why are we getting such great data transfer speeds on the iPad mm -hmm. all of a sudden? That was never a priority before. It's yeah. because it has a Mac chip in it, the M1 chip. There, there weren't buses on there built for Thunderbolt on that wafer before. And, and so you're seeing some of the best things that we can expect from a Mac make their way to the iPad. And that speaks to what Chris is saying as far as how Apple is laying out the roadmap for pro professional apps like Final Cut, like Logic. Yeah. So it's, it's really I'm exciting. Yeah. And I would add one thing. I think actually we could see Thunderbolt coming to the iPhone as well in the form of USB-C. Now I know the whole lightning versus USB-C <laughs> conversation has been Apple proprietary stuff and they make millions of dollars off of lightning. So that's not changing anytime soon, but possibly in the next four years or so, USB-C, if it's still around, I could see Apple moving to Thunderbolt, even something like Thunderbolt 4 by 2026 in the iPhone and all across the board. Yeah, and as far as revenue, it really comes down to revenue stream as far as mm -hmm. I.O. goes for the iPhone because Chris mentioned the MFI program, the Made for iPhone program. Apple makes so much money, more than you would believe, on uh, just products that are trying to license the Lightning connector for use on the iPhone. And with uh, USB-C sort of being an industry standard and nobody really having... And not any one company having the reins over that technology, mm -hmm. uh, at least contractually. And it'll be interesting to see if Apple's willing to give that control up. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. I think that was the same story with Thunderbolt too. If you remember Thunderbolt and Intel, Apple kind of had a domain on that for a long time and it became open source after a while. But I think that what it's what's going to happen is you have to start seeing people uh, complain. 
about mm-hmm. speed on lightning or about power on lightning, how fast you can charge. Lightning has its limits. And unless they upgrade it to a, like lightning 2.0 or something where it's even faster, right now you got lightning or thunderbolt. And right now thunder is looking better than the lightning. So I want to pivot to our next story here. For this, we're going to zero in on a horrible man named uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez. Did you guys hear about this? I did hear about that. Yep. Okay. So he is a former Facebook exec. He was at Facebook from 2011 to 2013. He had a seven-year stint where he did some, you know, consultation things for Twitter and things like that. So he joined Apple on Monday. He was hired at Apple for, he was going to be on the App Store and Apple News advertising team. And he was fired by Wednesday evening. Now, this is how it happened. Within hours after a petition was circulated with over 2,000 signatures of Apple employees expressing concern about Martinez's misogynistic and racist comments expressed in a book he had written about his experience working in Silicon Valley. Now, one of the comments he said, he commented, most, quote, most women in the Bay Area are soft and weak, end quote. And it makes me sick to my stomach to even read this. But I feel like it's important to talk about. By the end of the day, Apple fired him after this petition was circulated. And Apple made a statement on this. They said, quote, at Apple, we have always strived to create an inclusive and welcoming workplace where everyone is respected and accepted. Uh, behavior that deme- demeans or discriminates against people for who they are has no place here. And that statement uh, aligns with Apple and their values as we known them thus far. I, I want to zero in on some, t- some statistics here. At Apple, women actually make up 34% of the workforce. So they're way ahead as far as diversity and inclusion compared to other companies in the Valley, which I think is why their products are, are, are so popular because they do have so many different perspectives and diverse viewpoints going into the development. 23% of their development team is made up of women and 31% of their leadership team is women. So you really take a look at that. And it speaks to Apple and how inclusive they are and how deeply ingrained that is as a part of their company DNA. I want to ask you guys, why don't you why do you guys think this wasn't uncovered by Apple before or during the hiring process? This kind of brings into question what their hiring process is like. Is it like their app review process where it's half human and half automated? Because it's this is very serious to have someone make it through, slip through the cracks like this with with these kind of values that are, what are your thoughts? So may I ask, because I've been like in and out on this story, like I get the gist, obviously. Do we know where these direct quotes actually came from? His book. His yeah, they book. came from a book mm-hmm. that, that he, he, he wrote this book, and I guess it's supposed to be his, yeah, it was a New York Times bestseller, okay. which also brings into question why he wasn't under this the microscope before being criticized for these comments beforehand, because in, in what world is that acceptable? Yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll put it like this, Brown. What's down in the comes up in the bucket. If you say these things in your past, especially in the age we are now, it's going to come up. Now, that doesn't mean there's not forgiveness and grace toward people. We have to, we can't have a society if people aren't loving and graceful, but it does not mean that there's always a place in public positions at big companies for people who have had those kind of transgressions, those kind of issues in their past. In terms of Apple, I think, honestly, just not sugarcoating it at all. It looks bad either way. They're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. If they say that they knew about it, it's like, why did you hire them? If they say they didn't know about it, it's what's your process? How are you hiring these people? But what I do think, and something that comes to mind is the one of the award shows, Tom Cruise was giving back his awards because it had come out that they had no African-American people. Globes, yes. Yeah, so I think sometimes light is the best disinfectant and to make these corporations do the right thing. Sometimes you just have to expose it. And and, and so it's not an issue unique to Apple. But yeah, I think Apple made the right move here. It's not that we can't forgive this guy if he's shown that he's changed or that he doesn't feel that way. But as far as holding positions in these big companies and being leaders and stuff like that, I think, yeah, it it was the right move. And and Apple is a company that's built on core values. Mm -hmm. And the reason why their products are so cohesive and the reason why everything works so well together so well integrated is because they stick to those values and they do have social values as well they have they they do value things like accessibility and inclusion and diversity and that's one of the things it's part of apple's dna that makes them special and this is uncomfortable to go over but it's an important conversation 
correct? So, Will, I want to zero in on you for a second. You Have you taken a look at his LinkedIn? Because I have. And yeah. It says he's been employed by Apple for the last two months, but that he started in April of 2021. So it's kind of some conflicting information there. Has he been there longer than we know? And now this story is just coming to light. I don't know if you've had the chance to do some background on that. I have not. And it seems like we could probably spend an entire episode dissecting uh, this guy and what may or may not be true and what may or may not be right. At the end of the day, I think most people us included, we have common sense about what's wrong and what's right, but agree on the forgiveness aspect. To publish it in a book seems pretty definitive. Mm. It's not like a passing tweet or something like that, or a tweet that was deleted and drug up. Right. To piggyback on, Chris, what you were saying, if I had to take a guess, knowing how Apple is and working for them in the past, I would imagine that they didn't know about this as opposed to did and turned away but it certainly raises the question how slash why was it not uncovered although i also think hindsight's 2020 when Mm. you say something like that and if this book was never necessarily published publicly online like a transcript that's searchable then it may have been a lot harder to to realize And then once you poke the hive, all the bees are going to come out. And so it seems, and this is, this goes for lots of different news stories that break and you're like, how how could that have happened? And then all of a sudden one person comes forward and then 20 more do. Yeah. At the end of the day, I can't defend Apple on why it didn't necessarily come up. I can only try to think of you know, ideas and things. I think to speak to what Will was saying, in in this circle, we can all agree that's innately and, and utterly disgusting and wrong. And it's, I know there was a female Apple employee that took to Twitter and she spoke on this matter and she said, I'm tired of having to look across the room and males thinking that I am weak or that I can't make it or that I'm not of importance in this meeting. And so it, it really raises uh, a lot of, questions systemically how do we deal with people who have these ideas who have these preconceptions based on who people are and and like will said we can make a whole show about that but i think it's important to question why it broke through the cracks and i think we've covered that a little bit but again it's yeah. a very important discussion and like that, i said are- until we figure out those answers light is the best disinfectant you just got to expose this stuff Now let's bring it on right back over to Zoom. Now, Apple has, they've always said we operate like a startup. We have values that we keep close. We hold tight-knit meetings throughout the day. It's really a fast-paced environment based on on, on small collaborative groups. One of the, the weaknesses that I see in that method is a lot of things that Apple does, they play it by ear, so to speak. And you've seen that with the app review process. Um, the whole thing in court, they're being taken to court now with Epic Games and discussing the whole, the cut that they, 30% cut that they take from developers who are making more than a million dollars a year um, on their apps. So it, it brings into question lots of different things. As it relates to Zoom, Apple is accepting Zoom under a an entitlement program. That's what they're calling it. It's just an entitlement program that gives them access to private APIs through the camera app on the iPad. Now, Chris, I'm sure you're really familiar with this, just as I am, because we are both very iPad-centric in our workflows. This little, this annoying thing will happen on Zoom, where if you try to multitask during a meeting, it'll shut your camera off. It's the worst. And it's, yes, it's incredibly annoying. And it's really not that Apple hardware-wise can't keep the camera on, it's one of those things where it's built in there as a privacy concern. So if you switch between apps, the camera can't stay on in the background. Right. But if you take a look at things like FaceTime, you can multitask with FaceTime. You can jump around the OS and still have someone on FaceTime. That's that private camera API that allows the camera to stay on. Yeah. They've given Zoom access to this private API. And when it was brought into question why third-party developers who weren't big juggernauts for Zoom didn't have access to this, Apple pulls out some bogus PDF and says, 
what do you mean? It's always been there. Just contact us. Just ask us. And it's they're revealing a, a door that wasn't visible before that they opened for Zoom. And now, oh, yeah, what are you talking about? We've uncovered the curtains. It's it's available for everybody. Right. And, and this is where you had the whole thing with Epic shape, was shaped and molded over, over these kind of entitlements and exceptions yeah. that Apple makes. Yeah. You had Apple cutting deals with Amazon uh, and Netflix where they only took 15% from these guys right off the bat. Why? Because they were huge corporate juggernauts. And, and I, I think this is incredibly wrong as far as a step for Apple. It's great for the consumer because we don't have to deal with that annoying camera flaw as far as multitasking. But it, it to me, on another end of the spectrum, it's also a privacy concern. Yeah. Because Apple, as part of its statement, said, yes, this door is open. Um, and it's also open for CarPlay, and it's also open for HomeKit. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to think about things that you put into your home, do you, do certain HomeKit products have access to private APIs that I, the consumer, don't know about? Should yeah. there be a ribbon, a verified label, a check mark, uh, something on that nutrition label for that app that I use to hook up this device in HomeKit okay. that lets me know, hey, this app has access to a private API and it may be a privacy concern. Are you willing to proceed? How do you feel about this? Because you have a lot of HomeKit devices in your house. I do believe Apple believes in privacy and I don't mm -hmm. think that they would allow these entitlements to encroach on those. And something like this being the main example here this isn't a privacy thing, right? It isn't a privacy discussion, but it, it brings into question if you have access to private APIs that Apple's only supposed to have access to, what happens when those things are exploited? Yeah, but I'm saying I don't think Apple will would give any entitlements that would degrade their view and stance on privacy mm -hmm. because I think if they did that all willy-nilly, well, then... But th that's what I'm saying. It's to assume that Say you have a smart home camera that's been given this entitlement by Apple where, for instance, it can turn on when you're not home. It, I, as a consumer, want to be educated on what that app does have access to. And Apple does a really good job of that with privacy labels and asking you whether or not to track. It's just the fact that even things that are encrypted, there's always that chance we're seeing. We're going to talk about in a moment, air tags have been hacked and there's some things going on there. So access to a private API to me as a consumer and not an Apple sheet, if I look at it from a consumer perspective, it's to me, it's a vulnerability. It's like giving someone a private key to a door that not everybody gets to open. And so it brings into question, what if, what if you had a find my device access to a private API? To answer your question specifically, if that really were to happen, and that was a specific example where the camera is allowed to turn on whenever the heck it wanted to, yeah, I would be upset and I would lose trust. But I don't think that would ever happen. Yeah, it's a great discussion. I think we have to be really careful with it, though, and especially in the way that we respond to Apple saying, oh, here, this was here the whole time. And this is why. Typically, when Apple is ever found out to be doing something, it's mm -hmm. typically because they erred on the side of privacy. They erred on the side of the user. For instance, the whole issue with the government getting at Apple because they couldn't unlock an iPhone. They're like, hey, we put this in there and we can't even get into it. So I think what we have here is Apple had special APIs and they private APIs, and they chose to err on the side of caution. They, because of the juggernaut that Zoom now is and how essential it is and just the way that society works now, they decided to let in Zoom. They said it's necessary. Us as a private company, we believe it's necessary to, mm -hmm. to allow you access to these application programming interfaces. And now everybody sees it. And so I think what Apple's going to do, of course, they're going to say, yeah, anybody can do it because they know they're about to get their pantsuit off if they don't. So yeah. what they're saying is, yeah, oh, yeah, everybody can use it. But I think what this is going to end up being is just ask to track the big beef they're in with Facebook yeah. and stuff like that. They will give you access to certain APIs, but you will need to give permission. So they'll say, look, it's not our position to give Zoom the authority to use these private APIs. Mm -hmm. We will now leave that to the user. And I think gracefully, Apple tends to do that. They'll just say, Okay, we'll step out of the conversation altogether. This is between a third-party application and the user. 
Mm-hmm. That was a great way to put what I was thinking. Too. Yeah, very thorough but concise assessment of the issue. Uh, thank you. Now, our last story of today, we're going to talk a bit about air tags. Now, they've been out for around two weeks now. Will, I know you picked up some. Chris, do you have any air tags with you? Yeah, I picked up a couple. So yeah, I have one that I'm Excellent. doing for the app. I have one that I'm currently using in my wallet. I don't know where that is. And then I have another one that I'm obviously using for the giveaway, but fantastic little things, but I know there, there are some issues. Now, uh, they've been hacked, quote unquote. The real story is they've been jailbroken, which opens the door for a hack. Hackers, I love, I'll put that in quotations. Hackers have found a way to modify the NFC URL on a jailbroken AirTag. This is a patchable firmware exploitation. So Apple can go in and update the AirTag over the air and patch this. And I'm sure they're already working on that and have something in the pipeline. But basically NFC is a technology that you'll find in most modern smartphones, stands for near field communication. It's the way Apple Pay works. So you bop something and something else happens. If you really wanna break it down. Now, this kind of opens a door to where they can customize a jailbroken AirTag to display any URL they want it to display. So presumably, if you're going to hack somebody, hack their information, you can create a fake URL that looks like it's an Apple login page, get people to sign in with their Apple ID, and then, of course, you can track them with their Apple ID information. So this opens the door for your location to be tracked if you fall into the rest of the scheme. This doesn't mean that on surface level, someone can track you using this vulnerability. That's not the case. They can build in uh, another phishing attempt where if you follow through with that, then they might be able to track you because they have access to your Apple ID. But at its baseline, this is just an NFC exploitation of vulnerability that that people have found with the AirTags. It's not like Apple's going to ship you AirTags that are already jailbroken. You'd have to find one that's already been goofed. I'm going to use that word because I'm sick of saying the word hack. Hack. (laughs) (laughs) Will had a whole rant on hack. One of the things that I tell people, and this goes for everything, whether you're doing banking on your iPad or whatever it may be, look for that little lock icon in the upper right-hand corner of your address bar. That means if that lock icon's there, that means it's Mm. a verified site and it is safe for you to put in your information whether it be your Apple ID, your banking info, always look for that 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 lock icon in the, the upper right-hand corner of the address bar. Will, tell us about hacking. You're a hacker yourself, aren't you? Can I just rant for a second? Well, I, was thinking about, I was thinking about this uh, earlier today. I hate the way the word hack just gets slung around these days. <laughs> I, it is so annoying. <laughs> and everything that it's like any... Anything that was wouldn't be how you would expect it to be is a hack. Sure. And seriously, can we just call it like something? When it comes to tech, it actually, a lot of times it is a hack. But like, I'm talking about people like on TikTok or something like that being like, I saw a, I saw a stupid uh, Facebook video that they were putting hot dogs in a waffle iron. Chris, uh, what is your interpretation of all this? Are you worried about your AirTags being hacked? Yeah, it's interesting. Apple being the company that it is and the giant that it is, the most valuable company in the world. When vulnerabilities show up in stuff they do, people always hold Apple to a higher standard, which is always Mm -hmm. my main argument to say that it is the best um, because everyone holds it to a standard that they don't hold everybody else. A lot of these vulnerabilities, where was everybody jumping on Samsung when Mm -hmm. their tracker had these same, it Mm -hmm. still does, or Tile. Many of these same issues that they're bringing up with the AirTags are the same vulnerabilities um, that you see on its competitors. But the thing is, and this is a fair criticism, is Apple has such a significant user Mm -hmm. base Mm. that it is a much more serious problem if now you can get into hundreds of millions of iPhones and there are any, because remember, they talk about the walled garden, the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. If there are any holes in that wall, you're talking about hundreds of millions of customers now being in in, in trouble. So I do understand people criticize it fairly on that point. But as far as the vulnerability itself, like you said, this is patchable. So I think it'll just be patched and that'll be the end of it. And I think that's important that you mentioned that, Chris, because Apple, just because of its scale, is under a much larger larger microscope than everybody else. So it's it's interesting. 
I With that being sure. said, we've reached the end of our show agenda for the show today. Thank you for unwrapping the tech of today with us. We'll let the people know where they can find you, and then we're going to pivot over to Chris. Yes, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at WSIG and writing the occasional article on com. Awesome. And Chris, where can the people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chris Grant Jr. Twitter, I've been very active lately. And then obviously on the Granite Geek Show on YouTube. Uh, you can find me there and then we Sibs as well. I have a giveaway going on now. I'll open it Ooh. up to your fans at Appleosophy. Just go on to the uh, my AirTags giveaway and uh, leave a comment there with Hey GG for Granite Geek and you'll be entered to win those AirTags and say you came from Appleosophy and I'll give you two free entries. I have all that information down in the show notes for people to check it out. So be sure to, to check out his YouTube channel and learn more on that, your chance to win AirTags. Thank you guys so much for joining us once again for unwrapping the tech of today. I'm your host, Bram Shank. You can find me on Twitter at Bram Shank. That's B-R-A-H-M-S-H-A-N-K. Come on over, say hi. We have some exciting stuff in the pipeline coming up, giveaways. I I won't tell too much right now, but thank you guys for listening and we'll see you guys next week.
paper-like call to action, paper-like CTA, paper-like CTA. Three, two. Again, this episode is brought to you by Paperlike to transform your Apple Pencil into a true writing instrument and your iPad into the best canvas you've ever used. Get your Paperlike today at http colon forward slash paper dot me forward slash appleosophy. Pick up one for yourself. You have to really use this to see how amazing it is. Again, I'm absolutely in love with mine, and it's a privilege to be able to promote Paperlike here on the show.